Dialogue Minnesota, conversations about the issues that matter to you. I'm Jim Dubois. Fifty years ago, the U.S. was awash in civil unrest over the war in Vietnam and racial injustice. This week, we look back at that tumultuous time and focus on the shootings of student protesters at Kent State University by members of the Ohio National Guard in May of 1970. Ken Hammond is a professor of history at New Mexico State University. He was a leader of the Students for a Democratic Society at Kent State University from 1967 to 1970. May of this year marked the 50th anniversary of the shootings at Kent State. We are discussing that event, the unrest of the late 1960s and early 70s, and the parallels to today's protests around the U.S. and the world. Professor Hammond, welcome to Dialogue Minnesota. Glad to be here, Jim. Many people either remember the Kent State shootings or hear about the incident in history class. Thirteen unarmed students were shot by the Ohio National Guard on May 4, 1970, four of whom died. What happened on that day and what led up to the shootings? Well, the demonstration that uh, began at noon on Monday, May 4, 1970, was ostensibly to hear a response from the university to a demand that had been raised the previous Friday, the 1st of May, for the university to condemn the invasion of Cambodia by American troops. That had been announced on the evening of April 30th by President Nixon. Uh, In the course of that weekend, between the call for the, uh, the rally on Monday uh, and the time that it actually began on Monday, there had been demonstrations, there had been some street fighting, the ROTC building at Kent had been burned down, National Guard troops had been sent in and occupied the campus. So when about two or 3,000 students assembled uh, on the commons in the center of the campus that, that noontime, they were confronted with National Guard troops on the other side of this large open field, the commons in the middle of the campus. Um, And what happened was that uh, students attempted to, you know, sort of have a rally, have a a speaker thing. Uh, The guard uh, declared that to be an unlawful assembly, which it was not. Fired tear gas, uh, pushed the students up over a hill into a parking lot. And then after some back and forth uh, movement. One small group of guardsmen, as they were moving back over that hill, back towards the common, stopped, turned, and fired down into the crowd of students uh, in the parking lot, uh, uh, killing four and uh, and wounding nine others. Tell us about your role in the Students for a Democratic Society. What was the group's involvement in the protest at Kent State? Well, SDS itself, Students for a Democratic Society, Their charter, our charter, had been suspended about a year earlier in uh, April of 1969 because of events going on, protests against the war in Vietnam and other issues at Kent. Um, So SDS itself as an organization wasn't involved in 1970, but it had been the main organizing group, uh, one of the most important anti-war groups, also a civil rights group. Uh, uh, The thing about SDS was that it was a sort of comprehensive radical organization. It saw the different issues and problems facing American society at that point as largely interrelated, um, so that poverty and racism and the war in Vietnam and uh, issues of gender or other kinds of discrimination were all linked together. 
uh, and needed to be dealt with in a, in a sort of systematic way. So SDS had done a lot of work, um, educational work, what we called political education, rallies, leaflets, speakers, movies, talks in the dorms, things like that, uh, over the previous couple of years. And that left uh, a, a, a legacy among students of political activism and, and of radical uh, understandings of, of American politics. But in the winter of 1969 to 70, there had been a kind of a, I suppose you'd say an ebb tide at Kent. As many students uh, in the wake of uh, a very, very active uh, political year in 68 to 69, many students sort of stepped back a little bit. I think that, uh, of course, President Nixon had been elected in part because he claimed to have a secret plan for peace. And I think some students in the wake of the struggles and, and people being arrested and some expelled from school and things like that, were taking kind of a kind of a let's wait and see attitude. But when the invasion of Cambodia was announced on the night of April 30th, uh, that triggered a lot of intense uh, emotion. And so uh, when the rally, there was a rally on Friday, May the 1st, which is when the demand was raised about condemning the invasion, uh, there were already over a thousand students who turned out for that initial rally. So I think that the role that, that SDS played, the role that I played as, as uh, I wrote a column for the student newspaper and, and uh, did some other you know, research and publishing work at that time, was to, as, as the saying used to be, to raise consciousness, to make students aware, not just of the issues in the, in the sort of out there in the world somewhere, but the ways in which our university was implicated in those through defense research, through racist recruiting by the Oakland Police Department, through different kinds of connections to the larger society. We're talking with New Mexico State University professor of history, Kenneth Hammond, who was a student activist at Kent State University in 1970, at the time when four protesters were killed on that campus by members of the Ohio National Guard. Fifty years later, how do you view the Kent State shootings? Has your perspective on what happened changed at all over time? Well, of course, one, one hopes that one doesn't just stay mired in some, you know, uh, fixed mentality. But I think largely uh, I, I view those events from 1970 in, in the same way that I have. You know, I, I hope my understanding maybe has, has developed and become more subtle. But uh, I think that essentially, uh, you know, what happened at Kent in 1970 had important impacts because you know we were a, a, a white middle class working class university for the most part. We had African American students and SDS and the Black United students had worked together on, on political activism, uh, but it was an overwhelmingly white uh, student body, and uh, you know and yet you know the events of May Fourth showed that the American government, the state, was willing to use lethal force to suppress students white middle-class students from expressing their views, their criticisms, their antagonism to the policies of their government. And of course, that right is guaranteed in our constitution and was being exercised on May 4th without violence. 
So I think that the idea that the armed forces might be deployed domestically to shoot down white college students was shocking for many Americans. And I think that that did in the long run contribute to changes in political opinion that helped to bring about, I won't say we're the only cause, but we're part of the process of bringing about the end of the war uh, in Vietnam. Now, having said that, it's also very important to recognize that uh, Kent State was not the only place that students were killed in 1970. Two students were shot 10 days later and killed at Jackson State University. Uh, students had been killed in South Carolina in, in previous years. And of course, black people and other people of color were subject then, as they are now, to racist violence on a, a horrifying scale. But that, you know, that was sort of it's terrible to say, but in the context of the 50s and the 60s, that was almost seen as, as business as usual. It was the extension of that to a campus like Kent State that was so shocking to, to mainstream America. Obviously, uh, people of color uh, and even, even working class uh, white people were pretty used to uh, the violence of, uh, of the state and the police. But, uh, but it was shocking to see those images on the news for a lot of middle-class parents who thought, well, that could be my kid tomorrow. Let's talk about the Jackson State University shootings. That happened 10 days after the shootings at Kent State. At Jackson State in Mississippi, two students were killed, 12 wounded by police. Uh, Jackson State University, of course, an historically black university. How were these two incidents similar, and how did race play a role in how that event was covered and remembered compared with the Kent State shootings? Well, I think that the events were, were obviously not exactly the same because the shootings at Kent took place in the context of a large, a mass protest, uh, whereas uh, at, at Jackson State, it was, it was really, uh, in a sense, a more a more traditional uh, perpetration of violence by state police uh, against uh, what they perceived or, or, you know, understood to be uh, student, uh, not even, it wasn't even student protesting. It was, it was sort of student rowdiness or something like that in the context of a highly politicized, highly polarized moment in American society and American history. I think that the coverage of that and the memory of that has been um, obviously less uh, uh, dramatic, shall we say, uh, than that of Kent State uh, for reasons that, that go to the, the, the essence of power relations and race relations in our society. For, for black students, for young black people to be killed by state police in, in Mississippi uh, was not all that unusual. Uh, and it, was, uh, it wasn't going to capture the attention of the mainstream media in the same way that what happened at Kent did. We, Kent, have always sought to bear that memory with us and to, we talk about the spirit of Kent State and Jackson State as something that we commemorate when we gather back in Kent. And I think it's imperative, especially in these times we find ourselves in today, to always link up uh, our communities, our, our, our struggles uh, between people of color, 
working people, no matter of what color. Uh, these are these are struggles that are interconnected and interrelated, and uh, we want to maintain, we want to keep alive that memory of what happened to Jackson State and at Orangeburg, South Carolina, and to Fred Hampton in Chicago, and all the things that have gone on uh, down the years since then. We're talking with New Mexico State University professor of history, Kenneth Hammond, who was a student activist at Kent State University in 1970, at the time when four protesters were killed on that campus by members of the Ohio National Guard. After 1970, did you see any improvements in how law enforcement agencies treated protesters? Are you surprised at the images of protesters met with clubs and rubber bullets at today's protests? Well, I think that that there have been significant changes in the the sort of posture, and I don't mean that in a in a, like a posture in a false way, but in the attitude that police departments have assumed towards uh, towards their constituent populations. And I should, I, you know, full disclosure here, my I ha- had an older brother um, who served in Vietnam. Uh, and came back and became a police officer and had a long career in the police and wound up as a, as a United States Marshal. Um, so I know that, that cops are just people and there's good cops and bad cops and all that, but there's an institutional structural role that police departments play, which I think has, has uh, been seriously uh, uh, transformed in the last 20 years, say. Um, I think that in the immediate aftermath of the war in Vietnam and the protests and the, and the widespread um, critical attitudes that, that grew in our country in those days, that there were improvements, things like the Kerner Commission and, and other studies, uh, initiatives by uh, both the federal government and by local police departments and state governments. I think that for a while there were improvements. Unfortunately, I think that in the wake of 9-11, there's been a kind of militarization of police forces around the country, ostensibly in the name of, of anti-terrorism. But of course, uh, you know, that, that has spilled over and carried over more broadly into the way that police departments interact with, with the communities in which they exist. I think that, you know, we're hearing uh, uh, the slogan uh, uh, or the call for defunding the police. And I think that the way to understand that or the way to approach that perhaps in a practical sense uh, is to to move away from, to get away from this model of of the police as, you know, driving around in armored vehicles, wearing Kevlar vests and having these automatic weapons and all this stuff so that they look like and conduct themselves like occupying military forces in a hostile environment and get back to the kind of policing that uh, you know that existed in the past, uh, where where cops were part of a community, cops were part of a neighborhood, uh, and and operated in a more integrated and, and community based way. So I think that that repudiating this model of, of militarization of the police, all this funding that was churned out by the federal government after 9/11, to to upgrade the military capabilities of local police departments. I think that has brought with it a mentality that that we can clearly see does not serve us well, does not serve people of any color, uh, of any community well, and has been particularly oppressive and provocative and has inflicted tremendous damage 
on black lives and the lives of people of color and, and, and working people across the country. You were the lead plaintiff in the federal lawsuit Hammond versus Brown. Tell us about that case, how you became the lead plaintiff and the result of the court's decision. Well, Hammond versus Brown, that was a case that uh, we filed uh, in the wake of uh, the deliberations of a special state grand jury that was impaneled in the fall of 1970 to investigate the events of May 1st through 4th at Kent State. And that grand jury issued 25 indictments against mostly students, but some non-students and even one professor, a sociology professor. I was one of those 25 people that was indicted, again, to be upfront. But it also issued a, a report. And under the law of the state of Ohio, a grand jury can either issue indictments or it can issue a report, but it's not supposed to do both because the report prejudices the the prosecution of, of whatever indictments the grand jury uh, saw fit to to put forward. Now all the people that were indicted were on the on the part of the demonstrators. No member of the National Guard, no member of the state government, no civic or public official was ever held responsible in any way for the killings at Kent. Uh, all the people who were indicted had been either in the demonstrations or uh, in some way related to the, to the protest. So we sued in federal court to get the, the results of the grand jury um, thrown out uh, on the premise that, uh, that the indictments couldn't stand because they had been prejudiced by the report and the report couldn't stand because it had been prejudicial to the indictment. And that went to court in, uh, in Cleveland. And uh, the judge, William Thomas, issued a ruling eventually, uh, which allowed the indictments to stand, but did suppress the report. The copies of the report had to be uh, destroyed and, and expunged and all that. But that did leave uh, the indictments to stand. And those cases began to come to trial uh, at the end of November of 1971. But the state of Ohio was unable to obtain convictions uh, the first four cases went to trial, no, no convictions were obtained, and when the fifth case, which coincidentally happened to be mine, um, came up on, I believe it was the 9th of December, the attorney general instructed the lead prosecutor there to drop uh, all the remaining charges against the other uh, 21 uh, indictees. So, uh, the main reason for that, I think, was that uh, in the meantime, the state of Ohio had elected a new governor. Uh, the previous governor, uh, conservative Republican James Rhodes, uh, who had inflamed things in Kent in May of 70 with, with some public pronouncements, had been defeated and uh, replaced by a liberal Democrat, a guy named John Gilligan from Cleveland, um, who was frankly politically embarrassed to be overseeing the prosecution of, of students for getting in the way of the bullets, as it was put. Uh, and uh, so when they couldn't get uh, convictions in the first few cases, he just wanted to be done with it and instructed the attorney general to, um, to have those charges dropped. We're talking with New Mexico State University professor of history, Kenneth Hammond, who was a student activist at Kent State University in 1970, at the time when four protesters were killed on that campus by members of the Ohio National Guard. 
What would you say to today's protesters about your experience in the justice system? <laughs> well, uh, my experience in the justice system was uh, was prolonged and uh, certainly was, was very political in nature. Uh, I mean, uh, the law, not all law, not law all the time, but the law certainly can be used as, a, as an instrument of political policy. And I think in the, in the context of heightened uh, tensions and heightened polarization within the country, that becomes even more true. So I would say that my experience with the legal system was to be very, very careful uh, or my lesson from that experience was that one should be very, very careful, get good attorneys, uh, raise as much money as you can, and uh, don't ever give up uh, because uh, it can take uh, long periods of time to pursue justice. Uh, it can be uh, successfully pursued, although the outcome, as was the case for us, can sometimes itself be strongly influenced by political concerns that have little to do with the merits or demerits of the actual case. In other words, we were not acquitted. We weren't vindicated uh, in, in the courts of law. Uh, we didn't wind up being prosecuted and going to jail, but uh, the courts did not uh, reach what I considered to be a, a, a just decision. Uh, instead, it, the outcome was itself uh, shaped by political concerns. Uh, so I think that, that people encountering the justice system today need to be very cautious and, and very clear-eyed uh, in their regard for that system and never take it lightly and never uh, think that it's, uh, it's just a lark because uh, there were people uh, at Kent uh, who not in our case, but uh, in other instances, wound up uh, doing serious time uh, for merely for taking part in, uh, in political protests. So it's a, it's a system that, that is dangerous and needs to be taken very seriously. How did President Richard Nixon react to Kent State? And do you see any similarities to President Trump's response to the recent protests and unrest? Well, I'm, I'm never one to, to speak fondly of Richard Nixon. But uh, one must acknowledge that uh, uh, even when, uh, you know, six or 700,000 protesters were in the streets of Washington, D.C., uh, which happened repeatedly during the Nixon presidency every year uh, from 1969 to 1972, there were demonstrations in April and October that drew well over half a million people. Nixon never displayed the kind of... Uh, uh, militarized response that Trump defaulted to instantly. Um, and very famously, of course, uh, Nixon uh, one night uh, actually went to the Lincoln Memorial to talk with protesters. Uh, I think that was a bizarre episode, but, uh, you know, he did do that. And we need to acknowledge that. Whereas uh, uh, President Trump, um, I think, certainly fans the flames of hostility. He, uh, he makes uh, threats and statements that are, uh, I think, to say counterproductive is, is the mildest way one could put it. And, and uh, things like, like brushing aside demonstrators using tear gas and billy clubs so that he can go for a photo op across the street just, just reflects his general contempt for the democratic process and for people exercising their, their rights of free expression to, uh, to, as the Constitution says, petition their government when they have grievances. Uh, so I think the, 
you know, as I say, I'm I'm loath to uh, paint Richard Nixon in a very positive light, but the contrast certainly makes Donald Trump look much worse. There are a couple of iconic parts of our culture that really have come to represent the incident at Kent State. Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young recorded the song Ohio about the massacre and a photograph taken by the Kent State student John Philo won a Pulitzer Prize. Many can recognize this photo of a very agonized Marianne Vecchio, a runaway, kneeling over the body of Jeffrey Miller. How has this particular image and other cultural references like the song Ohio shaped our remembrance of Kent State? Well, that's a very good uh, that's a very good question. I talk about Kent State a lot. Every year, I go into high schools, community colleges, university classrooms, you know, to speak to students in American history classes or social studies classes or things like that. And um, usually, what they know are exactly those two things: they've heard the song and they've seen the picture. So I guess that that on one level, you could say that that those have been the memories that have kept Kent State uh, in, in the public consciousness. Uh, you know, there have been books, there have been some films, there have been some documentaries. Of course, it's featured in Ken Burns' uh, series on the Vietnam War and all that. But I think in terms of popular consciousness, popular culture, that probably the song and, the, and the, that particular picture that's the memory that uh, that people have. I think that you know how we remember uh, something like Kent State is always problematic. Memory is a is a it's a living thing and it's a volatile thing. In my program here at, at New Mexico State, we we teach courses in in memory and history uh, and the, the the vagaries of it and the care with which memory as a historical resource needs to be uh, handled. I think that both the song and the picture emphasize victimhood, emphasize uh, the, the disparity in power between uh, the, the guns of, of the state and the vulnerability of, uh, of our bodies, of our lives. And that, of course, is a lesson that, that it's vital that we retain. But I also think that we need to remember that Kent State was, was a protest. Kent State was a, as the term we used to use, an action. And that people have the right to protest. People have the right to assemble. And people need to demand that right and exercise that right. And I think that um, emphasizing, you know, Having, you know, the image of, of Jeff Miller, uh, who is lying there, shot in the head, bleeding to death, with Marianne Vecchio kneeling over him and, you know, obviously traumatized. That's a very, very powerful image. I'm not sure that I would substitute another image. Maybe the other image that I remember iconically from that day is the photograph of the guardsmen at the crest of the hill uh, with their unit officer uh, with his arm extended and his handgun and the others bringing their rifles to their shoulders and firing down into the crowd. That's an image that for me captures that moment uh, as one of, of state violence. Um, and, and I think it's also a very, very powerful image. Uh, but I think that, that, you know, emotionally, uh, certainly the, the Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young song 
and the image of, of uh, Mary Vecchio is, is they're very, very powerful. And of course, that's what we hang on to. Interestingly, of course, you know, she wasn't a student. She was a young, she was a teenage runaway from Florida. And that picture has haunted her life. Uh, uh, I, you know, we're, we're in contact. She comes to events at Kent sometimes and, and has identified and, of course, has lived as, as a part of that memory, as a part of our community. Uh, and yet that, that was in some ways such a random moment for her to find herself in that place at that time and to have that documented and incorporated into not just the historical record, but the public memory in the way that it has been. That's been something that we also need to think about, the way in which something like that can transform an individual's life uh, uh, in a way that, that certainly was not the result of any intent College campuses are obviously very quiet right now. Uh, first of all, it's summer break for most. Also, the coronavirus has shut on-campus classes down for the most part. But assuming that many colleges and universities return to classes on campus in the fall, do you think, given current events, there will be a resurgence in student activism and protests? Well, I certainly hope so, and I, and I do think so. Um, I feel right now, and I've been in many discussions in these recent weeks with, with people, the old Kent people that we all stay in touch with each other and, and people that I'm involved with here in New Mexico and uh, elsewhere in the country. And I think that um, this is a very, it's a very interesting, <laughs> to say the least, moment. Um, the key question in a, in a context like this, where what we're seeing is, is, is rage and passion in the streets, is how do we take that energy, how do we take that feeling and move it in the direction of organized, dedicated political activity? Um, it's one thing to vent your, your frustration, and I certainly get along with that. You know, we burned down that ROTC building at Kent. But the way that you change policies, the way that you change society, the way that we address the fundamental structures of inequality and oppression and exploitation that are at the core of all these issues is through political activism and through political organizing. And so the question is, how do we move from the passion in the streets to a passionate commitment to ongoing change? And I'll tell you, doing this in the, in the context of COVID-19 is rough uh, because uh, you can't, you know, it, it's, it's not the same as getting a bunch of people in a room and talking and dialoguing and interacting and then coming up with a plan and then going out and doing it, whether it's handing out leaflets or having a speaker or showing a movie, all these things that we do, we're not doing right now. I've been out to, to protests. I mean, I'm, you know, I'm 70 years old, so I'm cautious. I'm wearing my mask. I'm keeping my distance. But you know, young people in the streets today, of course, they're close together. It's dangerous. It's not just dangerous because the cops might come vamp on you. It's dangerous because you might make each other sick. So that's a very, very different context. I'm hoping that universities will reopen in the fall. We don't know exactly what's happening here at NMSU yet. I imagine there at uh, Minnesota, there's still some uh, conversations going on about how we're going to handle this. 
obviously for education, the, again, the very best thing is to have everybody be able to be together in the classroom in a shared space. That may not happen right away in the fall. That may not happen until we have uh, an actual vaccine, an actual way of controlling and suppressing this, this virus. But these issues that are with us, these, these injustices, these, these inequalities that we're trying to deal with, they're not going to go away either. And so I hope that what we can do in the fall, as people are doing now, is to be creative, to be innovative, to use the technologies which are available to us, and to maintain that spirit of community and solidarity while building structures and organizations. And, and there are many that people can join and participate in. And that's what people need to be doing is making that commitment to, a, to an ongoing process, to an ongoing struggle, and the work of really changing the way things are. Ken Hammond is a professor of history at New Mexico State University. Professor Hammond, thanks so much for joining us on Dialogue Minnesota. It's been a pleasure to be here, Jim. Dialogue Minnesota, conversations about the issues that matter to you. Next week on the show, we'll talk with the University of Minnesota professor of economics about the state of the U.S. economy in the wake of the COVID-19 pandemic. I'm Jim Dubois. That's all for this week. Thanks for listening. See you next time.